This week's episode of Core Lords is brought to you by the Better Beer Zero Alcohol Option. Uh, I'll tell you, one of the best things that's happened to me in the past 18 months is the proliferation of all of these uh, non-alcoholic beers. Like, I love beer. I love the taste of it. I love the refreshingness of it. The fizz. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I realized after drinking all these, uh, you know, this one is, I think, 0.5% uh, alcohol. I've realized that I actually am not that attached to the alcohol. It, it's more just the, the flavor and the refreshing zing of it. So, uh, I mean, this is a ripper. Like, what an epic opportunity to be involved with. Uh, you can pick them up at Dan Murphy's or BWS. And sick, man. And as an aside, like, fire out, better beer. They're backed by the lads from Inspired Unemployed, which means that we're right now sandwiched between two of the greatest comic blue-collar geniuses of our time, uh, that being the Inspired Unemployed lads, and uh, on the other end of the spectrum, the Batuta Advocate lads who uh, look after our other advertising and and sponsorship deals. So uh, what a great place to be in. Support blue-collar comedy. Get some zero-alcohol, better beer, beers India, or any kind of better beer beers India. But uh, yeah, frothing on the partnership and the zero alcohol option. Well played. Ain't That Swell presents Corlords. This week we're joined by Dr. Nigel Strauss, one of the leaders in this country and indeed the world when it comes to the research of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. As you may have already heard, Australia recently became the first country in the world to legalize the use of psychedelic-assisted therapy, specifically the compounds MDMA and psilocybin. They'll be used in the treatment of conditions such as PTSD and treatment-resistant depression. To me, it sounds like the best news ever, with the potential to shift the very course of humankind away from this unending division, greed, war, and obsession with material wealth and material reality. Dr. Strauss, as you can imagine, is a lot more cautious in his assessment. A few quick notes before we get into the interview. Due to time constraints, we weren't able to cover a couple of pretty important parts of this massive announcement. In particular, what the latest science says about these treatments. The most recent science on the efficacy of MDMA for PTSD via a stage 3 trial run by MAPS, the organization Dr. Strauss works for, found, and I quote, 67% of PTSD sufferers who had MDMA with an intensive course of psychotherapy no longer qualified for a PTSD diagnosis following the trial, compared with 32% of those who received a placebo with psychotherapy. 88% of subjects in the MDMA group experienced a clinically significant improvement in symptoms. And just a further note on PTSD, uh, because it is a very common and destructive illness that is fairly easily acquired, and failure to address it is associated with several comorbid conditions that include childhood trauma, alcohol and substance use disorders, depression, suicidal ideation, disassociation, and even cancer due to the constant flooding of the central nervous system with cortisol, the stress hormone, which is carcinogenic. For more info, I highly recommend the book, The Body Keeps the Score. 
flipping over to psilocybin, which you'll probably know is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, so some call them. Uh, the latest science via John Hopkins Medicine in America, who's a leader in the study of this compound, says, and I quote again, Researchers reported that psilocybin treatment in both groups produced large decreases in depression and that depression severity remained low 1, 3, 6 and 12 months after treatment. Depressive symptoms were measured before and after treatment using the Grid-Hamilton Depression Rating Scale, a standard depression assessment tool. Participants had stable rates of response to the treatment and remission of symptoms throughout the follow-up period with 75% response and 58% remission at 12 months. Uh, There's a quote here from Roland Griffiths, PhD and uh, professor in the Neuropsychopharmacology of Consciousness at John Hopkins University School of Medicine uh, and the founding director of the John Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. Griffiths is an absolute giant in this field alongside Rick Doblin, who we're about to hear more about, and Paul Stemitz. This is what Griffiths had to say. Psilocybin not only produces significant and immediate effects, it also has a long duration, which suggests that it may be a uniquely useful new treatment for depression. Compared to standard antidepressants, which must be taken for long stretches of time, psilocybin has the potential to enduringly relieve the symptoms of depression with one or two treatments. Finally, just a few notes on who our guest is and the qualifications that underpin his journey through this field. Dr. Strauss is a clinical and research psychiatrist and a consultant psychiatrist at St. Vincent's Hospital, Melbourne. He has a special interest in psychedelics-assisted psychotherapy and is currently an investigator in four psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy trials in Melbourne, including Australia's first psychedelic trial at St. Vincent's Hospital, led by Dr. Margaret Ross. He is a MAPS-trained psychedelic psychotherapist and is currently a co-therapist in two psilocybin trials in Melbourne. He is a co-author of several published papers about psychedelic medicines and the chairperson of ANZPPAP, Australian and New Zealand Psychiatrists for Psychedelic-Assisted Psychotherapy. Dr. Nigel Strauss, welcome to Ain't That Swell. And, and before we get into it, can you tell us a bit about your professional history and how it relates to the uh, therapeutic application of psilocybin and MDMA? Yeah, Jed. Well, I've been a psychiatrist for many years and uh, it's a profession that I love and uh, it keeps evolving for me and I keep evolving for it. Um, over the years, uh, I've seen big changes in psychiatry. It began as a discipline that was very interested in what we call psychotherapy, which is more the talking therapies. Um, but as time has gone on and science has become more potent, um, those talking therapies have become less popular, partly because um, some of the ideas that were conveyed in those talking therapies weren't ideal uh, and, have, and, and weren't correct, um, but not all of them. And unfortunately, in a sense, the baby was thrown out with the bathwater and um, psychiatry has now become very scientifically orientated. Not that there's anything wrong with science, but it needs to be balanced, I think, um, with the psychotherapeutic talking approach. That approach now is mainly um, taken over by psychologists and psychiatrists are seen by a lot of people as um, people who write prescriptions for various medications. And I've always been a little uncomfortable with that. And my definition of psychiatry is more along the lines of um, the relationship that the treater or the healer, if you like, forms with the patient. And um, that's the key to good therapy. 
And if you go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist and you don't get on with that person, I think you're, you know, you're really behind the eight ball. You've got to, you've got to be able to get on with the person that you're talking to, and it is a key to the healing process. Mm-hmm. So, um, in more recent years, uh, Jed, um, there's been uh, an opportunity for us to investigate psychedelic drugs. Now, it's not the first time this has happened. Back in the 60s and 70s, um, these drugs were um, not discovered. They were discovered earlier than that. Uh, Hoffman discovered LSD. Oh, you got me here. I think it was 30s, 40s, 50s, sometime around then. And uh, it was uh, marketed and um, encouraged by the drug company that was making it, uh, encouraged to be used by psychiatrists. And back in the 60s and 70s in Melbourne, um, they uh, they were giving it to the psychiatrists to use with patients. And uh, it uh, was investigated. The quality of the research back then was not as good as it is now. Um, standards have improved, and I think that's a good thing. But nevertheless, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that back then uh, a lot of people were helped uh, by these drugs in combination with talking therapies. And this is the key. I keep talking about psychotherapy and talking therapies. These drugs are not just to be given to someone and uh, you come back and see if they're better. They're very much a part of a psychotherapeutic picture, that is, you give someone this drug and then you sit with them for a period of time and help them cope with whatever experience they're having. We act as therapists, as guides in their trip or their process. Uh, it's fascinating work. But um, because of what happened culturally back in the 70s, I think it was, Richard Nixon didn't like uh, what was happening culturally. He blamed it to a certain extent on psychedelics and they were, as most people know, prohibited up until recent times. And uh, there's been a bit of a psychedelic Revolution. They've been gentrified, and uh, in a in a in a great haste, really, in the last ten years. What well, I've been involved in it, last ten years, things have changed really rapidly, and they're continuing to change really rapidly. Uh, it's gone from the sublime to the ridiculous, or from the ridiculous to the sublime, whichever way you want to look at it. Nowadays, um, we've moved into a stage where these drugs are being investigated, and I've been involved in that. Uh, in that, and I am involved in that quite intensely at the moment. So, just to summarise, uh, the last ten years has been, or eight years, has been an advocacy period where some of us have been advocating for these drugs to be researched in in Australia. We we were successful, and now the drugs are being researched, and uh, now the. TGA are saying these drugs can be used for treatment. Uh, I have my doubts about whether that's happening a little bit too quickly, but that's the where we're heading, and uh, there's a lot of questions to be answered about that. Mm-hmm. And it says here that you're a MAPS-trained psychedelic psychotherapist uh, and, and a, a co-therapist in two psilocybin trials in Melbourne. Can you tell us a bit about MAPS? Sure. That's the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Science set up by an amazing guy called Rick Doblin. Uh, some of you might have heard of Rick, and certainly if you go online, you'll be able to see him in myriad YouTube things and all sorts of other TED Talks and everything. Rick's extraordinary. Rick, Rick's an American guy. Um, I've met, I know him. He's a friend. Uh, I've had lots to do with him. Uh, he uh, didn't give up. When these drugs were prohibited, Rick didn't give up. He thought that uh, it was wrong. And he stuck to his guns over the years. He did all sorts of research, spoke to people, advocated, raised money, set up maps um, late last century or earliest century, I'm not sure. Uh, and then um, things started to build up. He got some people on site. He raised some money and in particular formed a 
an association with a psychiatrist called Dr. Michael Mithofer, who's a lovely man, and uh, he began to do research with MDMA, which many people know, of course, on the street as ecstasy. But in this research, we use the real thing. Often you buy these things on the street and they're not as they appear. But with actually produced MDMA, Michael has done an enormous amount of research, uh, developed a, uh, a manual for psychotherapists, and uh, MAPS in the last 10, 15 years has been doing good research and they've come up with appropriate trial results. Uh, now they've done two phase three trials which have been completed and the results are good and they're going to the FDA, which is the Federal Drug Administration in America. Uh, and this is uh, looks like next year um, with all the work that's been done that they'll be legal. The, tr the clinical use of MDMA for PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder will take place. But we've beaten them to it, mate. Um, mm. The TGA in Australia have just said, no, we're going to do it now. And uh, we're, we seem to be, for some reason, Australia, and in particular Melbourne for some reason. Melbourne's where most of the research has happened uh, and most of the stuff's being done. I don't know why. So Melbourne is suddenly the, the, the pinnacle of psychedelic research and clinical use, I suppose. Uh, it's very exciting uh, it's it's a little bit overwhelming from a personal point of view. I mean, I've been involved in a number of trials, and I uh, I've kept in touch with Rick, and I've been personally sponsored a trial at Monash University using MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder. Because of COVID, and we've had all sorts of delays, but hopefully in the next month or two, uh, that'll get going. Um, in conjunction with Maps to become a a trainer, you have to do a, tra a, a therapist, you have to do a training program. Back in 2014 or 15, I'm not sure, I can't remember, I went across to a place called Turingham in the UK and did one of the early training programs with Michael Mithoffer and his lovely wife, Annie. Rick was there and some of the greats of uh, psych early psychedelic science were there, uh, Ben Sessa, uh, Carhart Harris, people like that. Um, we're all there and it was an wow. amazing, amazing experience. We were in this uh, – Rick knows a lot of people and he, he put us all there about, oh, I don't know, 50 of us, stayed in this amazing mansion in, in the uh, in this pastoral, beautiful pastoral part of England in, in the winter. And uh, it was it was an amazing experience, I have to say, oh, and uh, unforgettable. Yeah, really, really amazing. amazing. And, that, and there – yeah, and I met some really lovely people and I've made – kept associations. There were some lovely German people there who have set up a thing called the Mind Foundation. I'm on their scientific board and they've gone leaps and bounds. They've got a really interesting psychedelic process going on over there. So I was lucky to be there, just happened to be at the right place at the right time. So I trained there and um, I've, I've been very keen to have this treatment um, researched and practiced in Australia and I've um, funded this trial at Monash, which should get going in the next month or two. Um, one of the reasons we're doing, we've been doing the research here, is to train therapists. We're going to need lots of therapists to do this work, and they have to be properly trained. And I've been keen to do that. So uh, that's where we are with uh, MDMA and PTSD at the moment. Mate, that is so exciting, and I'm eternally grateful for the work of yourself and Rick and and, and all those uh, that you just mentioned in just you know not taking no for an answer and continuing to to push because of the the promise that these compounds uh, contain within them it, it, it's such an exciting time um and you know there's just so much trauma and and, and awful uh, mental health issues in the community globally so uh you know the, the the benefits of this are just so exciting and
thing and yeah, untold really, who knows? But I guess uh, I'd also like to know, you know, what this announcement means in, in Australia in terms of people being able to access these treatments and, and what that protocol might look like and, and when, it, yeah. Yeah, when it will be available. Well, Jed, the TGA have made this sudden announcement very recently that um, psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression and MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder will be available from the 1st of July, um, used by appropriately trained and qualified uh, and regulated psychiatrists. Uh, and that's all good in theory, but there are a lot of uh, a lot of detail. The devil's in the detail. We don't know the detail. We don't know who these psychiatrists are going to be. We don't know what sort of training they'll need, what sort of supervision, and who will train them. Um, and uh, there are a lot of questions to be answered. The TGA are doing a um, explanation uh, webinar on the 1st of March, coming up pretty soon, to explain to us uh, what, what it all means. But it does mean that um, the, the psychiatrists involved will will have to, you know, meet a whole lot of criteria. But we don't know really what that will be. Um, and um, I'm a bit concerned about it personally. I, I think, look, I, I don't want these treatments not to be available. But I think when they are available, we've got to do it properly. I'd hate to see things get stuffed up um, because of lack of preparation. And it was all going along very well. We were training people. We're doing this research. We're learning a lot. I'm learning a lot by being a therapist in these trials. Um, but um, it, it, it's a bit like um, you wouldn't want to go along to have your appendix removed by a doctor who's only theorised, only learned about removing appendixes from books and not actually having done it. So mm. we're going to have situations where a psychiatrist might want to use these drugs, but they've never really used them before and they don't have much experience in them. And that's a worry and a concern. Look, I'm not saying it's going to all turn out bad, but there are risks in allowing this to happen too quickly. And in terms of the protocol, like how does a, a treatment – I mean, I've actually had the MDMA treatment done for PTSD. It was underground but by a, uh, you know, a 20-year veteran of – um, you know, emergency services and, and, and a medical practitioner. But uh, in terms of the protocol that MAPS advises, uh, you know, what are we looking at roughly? Well, um, the protocol for the research is two or three doses uh, with uh, sessions before, between and after. The key to a lot of this is what we call integration, which is once you've had the experience uh, you need to do, continue to do some work on yourself. There, it's it's different with MDMA than psilocybin. The MDMA is much more specific for trauma, as you've indicated. So let's say you've had a, a traumatic experience which you haven't been able to process and it's still really at the back of your mind and it causes your life to be quite unhappy. You're on edge. You might be having nightmares or flashbacks or reliving things that are really unpleasant. That's really post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, some people can deal with it and some people get stuck in a sort of time zone where where the traumatization occurred they never move on and they're stuck what the mdma what the what the current treatments do is encourage you to go back into the memories and reprocess the memories so you can move on but that can be very difficult because of the levels of anxiety that are initiated by having to go back into the memory what the mdma does and anyone who's had mdma knows that it's a it's a sort of a relaxant but unlike Valium, you're wide awake. It doesn't dope you out. You're, you're pretty active and alert, but you also feel extremely positive. And with that sort of affect or mood or temperament, you can go back into the memory 
with the guidance from a good therapist. So you can go back in, reprocess the unpleasantness of the, the memories, work them through, understand them in context, stick them in the filing cabinet of your memory and move on. That's the basis of how all this works. And that's the the value of the MDMA. And the therapist uh, should be very aware of that and help people go back into the memory and reprocess them. And that's how it works. Now, different people will need different treatments. So some people might just need one dose. Some people might need two and some people might need more. And 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 that's how that's how really the, the process works occurs right right and and so the psilocybin protocol is that uh similar or no it's a different it's it's different um from my experience it's much different here people are not necessarily traumatized but they have circumstances or situations in their life uh that are causing problems um there is trauma i mean these are words we're throwing around here everybody's life experience is totally different as you know and uh, I'm trying to put labels on experience here. Um, but what what we find is that people who have chronic depression that does not respond to antidepressants or other treatments can respond to psilocybin. But there's far less work that needs to be done by the guides. We, co- we talk about the inner healer for psilocybin where people are put into a safe situation, and I'll talk about that in a second, and they can reprocess experiences that they've had or learn to see the world in a different way. Now, we can explain that in a whole different lot of ways, but just firstly, before I say that, it's very important that when these experiences occur, they occur in a safe place and the person feels safe, secure, and looked after, and that's why the therapy is so important. You wouldn't want to take psilocybin outside the Flinders Street railway station and expect some sort of therapeutic thing to happen. It's got to be quiet. It's got to be controlled and we use um, a face mask and headphones music is a very important thing to get people's uh, imaginations fired up and uh, the person has to feel safe and in a good relationship with the therapists Um, there the work if it if it works is done by the person themselves they come in prepared they have um, they have they come in with um, d- desires or um, aims or goals that they want to achieve through this process, and that's all talked through before they take the medication. Um, their intentions, that's the word I'm looking for. What are your intentions with this? And hopefully the psychedelic experience can facilitate that. And again, the dosage can vary, the experience can vary, but it should be in a, in a safe place. Now, what the the scientists say is that the drug psilocybin opens up all these networks within the brain that are normally filtered out by the normal brain functioning that you put into a a non-normal state of consciousness, which allows what we call neuroplasticity or nerve connections to link up so that you see the world in a different way. You have a different experience subjectively, and that in itself can be curative. So that's how this, that's how the psilocybin works. Mm. Oh, great. Oh, I, I love the idea of this this therapeutic uh, setting and, and all of these tight controls. And, um, you know, for, for years, so many people have been attempting to get something out of these compounds but you know it's quite hard to get the set and setting right without yeah. uh you know that well, coaching well jed it's in, if we look back in history jed and this is important um these drugs have been used for thousands of years by indigenous people mm. by so-called shamans which i'm sure everybody knows about <clears throat> in those structures or those constructs 
it was very tight. These drugs were used in the – it wasn't just a whole lot of people, you know, eating um, – taking mescaline out in the desert or, or ayahuasca ceremonies. They were very well controlled. They were very ritualized and people felt very safe within their culture. And and, that, and that's how they worked. Sometimes the shaman would take the drugs. Sometimes he or she wouldn't. Sometimes the people would take the drugs. Sometimes they wouldn't. But there were these rituals that, that were important. And we're in a situation where we don't have these rituals really. And we're, we as therapists or guides in this process, we have to sort of start adopting these rituals. Part of it is set and setting, that you're in a safe place with someone you trust. Uh, we, we bring in all sorts of things into the therapy. I've worked with several therapists and everyone's got their own um, approach to this. But the, um, it, has to, it has to somehow ignite some sort of spiritual aspect of the person. I think that's very important. Now, that word spirituality isn't a word that science uh, embraces. What do I mean by that? Well, it's got all sorts of definitions and I, I'm not going to go into it now and I don't want to bring in any woo-woo because that's a problem um, when you're dealing with all the scientific yeah. stuff, but never a sense, nevertheless, of, cult- a, a sense of connectedness it could yeah. be a, 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 a synonym for spirituality, I guess. Yeah, that's a good one. Those sorts of terms that people can relate to and they don't feel uncomfortable with, mm. um, and uh, all those things are important. And so these are these are really interesting questions that we ask and and we try and solve these problems and make people feel comfortable and we ask them to bring in things that are important to them into the therapy uh, because they have some meaning. Meaning is a very important aspect of all this. People are searching for meaning. I think we live in a society, Jed, where meaning is um, not uh, not not a, there's not a lot of it. You know, science doesn't really offer a lot of meaning. It gives a lot of explanations for how things work. But it doesn't ask the questions about what the hell we're doing here and what do we do with our lives and how do we make the most of our lives. And I think psychedelics have got a role in all of this, and that's one of the important aspects of their usage, as long as it's done well. You talked about underground therapy, and that's been going on for a long time. There's some great – I don't – I've got to be very careful I don't get involved in all of that because of my own professional status, but I have – I'm sure there's some good therapists, but because it's unregulated, there's probably a lot of bad stuff going on too. And I think mm-hmm. it's important that we get this stuff out of the underground and above ground and look at it clearly and properly and in a healthy way, uh, not to put down anybody who's doing it well anyway, but I think it needs to move up and be properly assessed and done. Absolutely, absolutely. And what are some of the most exciting aspects of this as far as you're concerned? Well... <laughs> I think seeing, um, I I hate to use this word, but not miraculous cures, but people who have profound experiences uh, under these controlled circumstances and get, uh, you know, get an enormous amount out of it such that their life changes relatively quickly if they're prepared to do the work and keep in mind the experiences they've had. Look, I'm a doctor I'm a, I, I, or a healer. I like to consider myself a healer. If I, if I can heal somebody's wound or, you know, distress, then that, to me, is really the best I can do. So that's what I find the most exciting. But I, I'm also very interested in transpersonal, transcendent concepts. I'm interested in philosophy. Personally, I think that this is one of the big things. Why I do this is because, to go right back to the beginning of our talk today, I think psychiatry's got a bit stuck in science and um, medications that um, rather than solve problems, suppress problems. And I think that what psychedelics can bring to psychiatry is the need to talk through things and also to open psychiatry up to things like philosophy and theology, uh, sociology, all these other disciplines 
that are crucial in creating good mental health in our mm. citizens and population. So it's an opportunity for psychiatry to grow. And what psychiatry, so I'll just finish, and psychiatry can give psychedelics some sort of scientific and ethical structure. So each of these aspects can give something to each other, and that's the way I look at it. Absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, the history of these compounds, particularly psilocybin and ergot, aka LSD, is, is astounding. You know, it, they seem to have accompanied every critical evolutionary stage of, of humankind. Uh, you know, all those indigenous cultures uh, in South America, our own indigenous population here in Australia, I understand, um, consumed psychedelic plants. We have, I think, eight of the top 11 naturally occurring psychedelic plants in Australia, but, um, you know, the ancient Greeks, uh, the Romans, the, the Vikings, like it, it, it's, it's everywhere. Uh, and it, it's been outlawed for since Nixon, I guess in, what was it? 72 or something. And yeah. you look at hum, where humanity's at now and it's like, we, it feels like we, we've lost our way so badly. We've been in a constant state of war. There's this epidemic of mental health issues um you know trauma when left untreated just spirals and um you know compounds the amount of violence and and trauma in the society um so the reintroduction of these compounds you know looking at it at a global kind of macro level uh, it could very easily or maybe not easily is the word but it could very likely shift the course of humankind and, and that couldn't happen a moment too soon well, Jed, I, I, you know, I, I, I love your idealism and I hope you're right, but <laughs> I, I, have to, I have to be very careful. I, I don't, first of all, I don't think these drugs are going to cure all our psychiatric problems. They're, they're really specifically going to help some people. And I'm, that's really, I'm putting a lot of thought into who. We've got to, this is an issue, of course, that we really should decide upon before we start treating people in a big, in a big way. Who are the people who are going to be suitable for this treatment and who are the people who, who could be harmed by this treatment? Uh, that's the first question. I hope that we can help as many people as possible, but I don't think like some people think that it's going to be a panacea, and I think we've got to be very careful not to promise a panacea. Um, when we move on to a more social and cultural uh, level, I think that um, what these drugs can do, which is to change worldviews and to give people a transcendent experience, particularly in our secular society where, you know, spirituality is, is not big on the agenda, uh, it's an interesting it, – it'll be an interesting influence. Even if it just starts people talking about spirituality and altered states of consciousness and how, you know, you can get some great insights from that – you know, the, we've got to be a bit careful with psychedelics because as they're, they're, they're a technology in a sense mm. and any technology can, can be used in a good way and any technology can be used in a bad way. And I can give you lots of examples of how psychedelics have been used badly as well as goodly. MKUltra um, would be the uh, most infamous, I guess. Yeah, there's that Charles Manson. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, he used them badly. But no, but look, the best, I don't know if you know, I'm going back a bit in history then, but if you go back to Harvard in the 60s and 70s with, with Timothy Leary, mm. he did the, and, and Timothy was a, he was a reasonable bloke. Uh, he did this research at Harvard with Ramdas, um, who worked with him, and they had a splitting of ways. Timothy went off in one direction and really, you know, he his latter years of his life was nothing to be really proud of. I think he took too much acid and sort of got lost in some sort of egotistical thing. Whereas Ramdas went off to India. He took, you know, he took LSD and went off to India and had some spiritual experiences and came back and became a great 
religious and philosophical teacher and did some great work. Mm. So, you know, these drugs, they can they don't give you the answers necessarily. They just point you in the right direction. And it's up to you as an individual to learn from that, either do good or do bad. And let's hope, hopefully do good. But, you know, morale, I don't think they're going to teach us how to be moral. They give us the opportunity to learn about morality. I'm, I'm getting a bit philosophical here, but it, no, I'm sure you great. understand what I mean. It's great. It's great. And uh, yeah, the integration of what you learn on those journeys is is the crucial part. And uh, yeah, I, I guess you know being able to check in uh, and, and maybe take another therapeutic dose or enjoy another session down the track. It keeps reminding you. Keep keeps you on course. Can keep you on course. Um, sure. And, and Look, just keep um, reintegrating and keep reintegrating it and just keep that kind yeah. of, you know, it can be a, a six month treatment. I don't know what the treatment plans are, but this yeah, is well, we don't know. Yeah. Um, but, look, I, I've been a lifelong meditator and uh, I, I find meditation uh, really helpful for that sort of consciousness uh, control and understanding of yourself. And I think that many people who um, have tried psychedelics would agree that, you know, one of the things that you can do is meditate. It's not what everybody wants to do. Some people into Tai Chi or yoga, physical activity or whatever it might be, creativity. Um, There's a lot of aspects to all of this. But um, I think that the major thing is that if you have a psychedelic experience, it can be profound and you can see the world in a different way and it's up to you as to what you do with that. Now, look, the other thing to remember is it's not for everybody. It's it's not suitable. There are people who might have a mystical or transcendent experience and they don't know what to do with it and because of their personality makeup or whatever it might be, they'll never know what to do with it. So uh, there, there are lots of, lots of questions and there's lots of situations uh, and we cannot, we shouldn't, we've got to be careful not to generalize too much. One of the things that really excites me about this announce, announcement is uh, the possibility that, you know, our first responders, our uh, emergency service frontline workers, whether it be police, firemen, ambulance officers, uh, soldiers, uh, you know, p- people in prison, these people are going to get access to these treatments. People who have, you know, often lost hope or got nowhere to turn to and no real avenue to treat the, the serious PTSD, which is so common uh, in all those fields I just mentioned. Um, yeah, I mean, can you talk about uh, just, I guess, the potential for healing amongst our community? Absolutely. I've seen, um, in my career, I've seen and still continue to see all sorts of people who have been traumatised. I saw many, many Vietnam veterans, very sad cases of men in particular uh, who had been traumatised by the experiences in Vietnam. Uh, Many of the conscripts came back and were mistreated by our culture when they came back. They were poorly treated. And these guys, so many guys I saw who came back from Vietnam really maladjusted because of their traumatisation. They couldn't really fit into it. Their marriages fell apart. They weren't necessarily good fathers. Uh, They often had, this is true, I sound strange, often had jobs as travelling salesmen because they could move around and they had real problems with alcohol, many of them, cannabis too. Um, These guys were just very sad cases and their trauma was never really well um, dealt with. And... um, I've seen uh, people who – I still see a lot of people who are in motor vehicle accidents. I saw most of the people who um, – most of the survivors and their families from the Port Arthur massacre. 
I've seen policemen, I've seen them all, and I still do see many people who have been involved in motor vehicle accidents and bushfire victims. So that's the list. Now, trauma, you're, you're quite right, Jed. There's, there's so many people who I think, if managed well, um, would um, would respond to good treatment with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. And I think if it's managed well and done well by good therapists, um, we'll see a bit of healing. Um, so it's a really positive thing. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to that aspect of all of this getting underway as soon as possible under good conditions. Great. Yeah, me too. And, and finally, uh, obviously, Australia, the first country in the world to uh, you know legalize the therapeutic use of these compounds. You mentioned uh, Rick Doblin before. Like, you know, what was his reaction or what was MAP's reaction to this announcement? It seemed to catch everyone off guard. And, and you know, <laughs> what do you think was behind that decision for Australia to take this bold step and, and be a, a leader in this field? Well, first of all, Rick's reaction, as I understand it, was he was – Rick loves all this. He thought it was great. So he thinks it's terrific. Uh, no questions asked. I mean, that's what he's been advocating for so many years and to see it happen. Uh, we, we, we came from behind. Australia, you know, trying to get the research up here has been a nightmare. We finally did. Rick was saying, oh, when are you guys going to get going? Well, we finally did. And now we've we've sprinted to the front. And the reason uh, we've done that is because there are particular lobby groups in Australia who, for their own reasons, believe that this should happen. And they've lobbied the TGA uh, very, very strongly. Uh, they've been very clever about it. And uh, the this is the first, I can't think of any examples, there might be, the first time that drugs have, that haven't been adequately researched are being allowed to be used uh, without the research. Um, everyone's a bit shocked and mystified, but the reason is because of the power of the lobby group. Wow, that's incredible. Yes, it and is. <laughs> I understand in America... A, a big part of uh, the thrust for getting these compounds legal is the vet department of veteran affairs. Is it called that? The, the yeah, the, uh, the uh, vets. Whoever looks oh, after the, the vet. return veterans. Yeah, the vets. Yeah, they, 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 look, that they've been very slow here. I lobbied them early on, and you know, five ten years ago, there was we we tried to get them on side, but they didn't. But now they're starting to see because of the cost of treating these people and managing them when they're not well treated. Um, is seen to be, you know, it's going to, it's going to be, it's going to be very cost effective. Um, everybody's getting on board and becoming enthusiastic. So, um, yeah, these treatments are going to be widely in the next five or ten years. They're going to be widely used, and uh, I think it's going to be great. It's going to be really looking forward to it. Amazing. Oh well, thank you so much, Dr. Nigel Strauss, for your work, your dedication, and your time today. Thanks, Jed. It's been a pleasure.